Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko, and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. A static double Troika summit gets underway in Khaburoni today. And UN agency Somali, encourages Somali nationals to leave the Dada camp in Kenya. In economics, Zimbabwe's government failed to reach agreement with civil servants on delayed salaries. And in sports news, Iceland beat England to reach the Euro 2016 quarterfinals. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. Human Rights Watch says it has documented the killings of at least 18 people by a police unit in the Central African Republic. The head of the police unit has already been removed from the position, but human rights activists say he should be prosecuted in connection with 13 of the cases. The killings were between April last year and March. And influential grouping of Catholic bishops in the DRC have called for elections to be held on scheduled this year and for President Joseph Kabila to step down when his second term ends. Head of the National Bishops' Conference of Congo, Priest Lenard Sentedi, says blocking the electoral process creates a worrying situation which risks plunging the country into chaos. The bishops also deplored the human rights violations and the deteriorating socio-economic and security situation in the country. On Friday, Kabila promised to organize elections but gave no indications of when they will be held. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has arrived in Khabarone, Botswana for the SADC Extraordinary Double Troika Summit. It has been convened to follow up the implementation of the recommendations of the Commission tasked to probe insecurity in Lesotho. The Commission was established in 2014 after former Lesotho Prime Minister Tom Tabane alleged that there were plans to overthrow his government. This was followed by bloodshed that led to some politicians and members of the defence fleeing the country. South Africa's High Commissioner to Botswana, Humdu Lembede. That is an extraordinary one uh, to make follow-up on the work of the Lesotho government in implementing some of the decisions and recommendations that were made by the Commission of Inquiry, the Puma Commission of Inquiry, in relation to all the problems that have transpired in Lesotho in the past few months. Somalia's Minister of International Affairs, Abdi Ayenti, has given an analysis of the current situation in Mogadishu. This after al-Shabaab militants announced preparations to launch another deadly attack before the end of the holy month of Ramadan. The minister says these kinds of acts are likely to continue for some time. 
these kinds of attacks, asymmetric warfare will likely continue for some time to come. But if you look at the overall picture, I believe we're winning against Al-Shabaab. We're certainly denying them more space to operate from within. Certainly they succeed because they are they're not in one particular geographic location where our African uh, brothers and our Somali National Army can go and attack them. There are very little of these spaces anymore. So that means that they are have merged into the civilian population and are able to organize themselves. That also means that uh, our security services, as well as our African Union uh, peacekeepers in Somalia, not always have the requisite, uh, the needed uh, resources to deal with a threat like this. And finally, an attack which left at least 25 people dead and many others injured at a hotel in the Somali capital, Mogadishu, has been condemned in the strongest possible terms by the UN envoy to the country. UN Special Representative Michael Keating says he's appalled by the attack on the Nasu Hablob Hotel in the southern part of the city, in which a government minister was also killed. The extremist editors group Al-Shabaab claimed the attack carried out by a suicide bomber on Sunday who detonated explosives at the hotel gate, allowing other armed militants to enter the hotel. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has arrived in Khaburoni, Botswana, for the SADC Extraordinary Double Troika Summit, a summit aimed at taking stock of the situation in Lesotho started yesterday with meetings of senior officials from the member states. It was convened to follow up on the implementation of the recommendations of the Commission tasked with probing the instability that dogged the Mountain Kingdom since 2014. Lesotho's former Prime Minister, Tom Tabane, alleged then that there were plans to overthrow his government. This was followed by bloodshed that led to some politicians and members of the Defence Force fleeing the country. Itumalen Khajane reports from Khaburoni. The SADC Extraordinary Double Tracker Summit is attended by the six member states, Botswana, South Africa, Tanzania, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and Swaziland. It follows the summit which was convened in January to hand over the report of the commission that was chaired by Judge Mpapi Pumapi. It was established to investigate the violence that erupted following a failed coup in that country. The killing of the former Lesotho Army General Maparangwe Mahau and alleged intimidation of members of the opposition parties were among the issues probed. South Africa's High Commissioner to Botswana, Mdule Mbede, outlines the importance of the summit. That is an extraordinary one that is coming to deal, uh, to make follow-up on the work of the Lesotho government in implementing some of the decisions and recommendations that were made by the uh, Commission of Inquiry, the Puma Commission of Inquiry, in relation to all the problems that have transpired in Lesotho in the past few months. Following the unrest in Lesotho, SADC appointed the Deputy President of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, as a facilitator of the mission aimed at quelling tensions in Lesotho. In January, the SADC double-tracker urged Lesotho to implement the recommendations of the Pumapi Commission. 
Lesotho Foreign Affairs Minister Trohang Sekhamani says there is stability in his country. At the moment, as we speak, Lesotho is a very stable country with security that is undoubted. And this is because as soon as this coalition government came into power, it focused on uniting the police and the army, who previously, that is in the previous government, were much at loggerheads. But now they work together as security establishments in that country. So now when you walk into the Sutu, you will never say that there are suspicions of anything in terms of uh, insecurity. Sakamani has also refuted claims that Lesotho and Sadek are at loggerheads. People think that there is something wrong between Lesotho and Sadak. No, it is not like that. Lesotho is part of Sadak. Lesotho is a member state of Sadak. So it is part of the decision making of Sadak. And what Sadak is pursuing now is to make sure that Lesotho is a stable, democratic government under the rule of law and good governance. The summit started on Monday with meetings of senior officials of the member states and will end on Tuesday, with the heads of those states receiving a report on the progress Lesotho has made in implementing recommendations of the commission. Sekhamani says most of the recommendations are being implemented, but some may take long as parties in coalition may differ on approach to be taken. I meet Kajani in Khaburone, Botswana. According to the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, moves are continuing to encourage about 320,000 Somali nationals to leave the Dada camp in Kenya, one of the biggest camp complexes in the world for displaced people. UNHCR was present at the talks over the weekend with government representatives from Kenya and Somalia, says that the target for 2016 is, is to see 150,000 Somalis return home voluntarily. All of them are to be offered a dignified as well as a safe return in the light of continuing military operations against al-Shabaab terrorists in Somalia, as the agency's Raouf Mazou explains. You have to look at Somalia as a very diverse place. The security in various parts of Somalia varies, and the refugees have, are going back to places that are safe. And we know that since 2011, when we had the last major influx from Somalia, which was primarily due to the drought and famine, we've had a return of Somali refugees, we estimate, of about 120,000. So there are parts of Somalia where, which are accessible, where refugees can return. The issue now is to make sure that in these parts of Somalia, returnees have access to basic services. One of the number one challenge that they've had, and including when our High Commissioner met some of them two weeks ago, was access to basic services. How can you invest in safe parts of Somalia? How can you make sure that those who return in safe parts of Somalia have access to education, health care, and, and, and the rest? Yes. Uh, so that's, that's the challenge. But the, the idea is definitely not to return refugees to parts of the country that are unsafe. I guess that's the message that UNHCR wants to be giving to the refugees in Dadaab, isn't it? That you're not going to abandon them, and even those that don't want to go, they'll still be getting help from you. This is what they will first, the more, more importantly, they should continue to, provide, to be provided with asylum and protection by the government of Kenya because we do channel resources and support from the international community. But at the end of the day, the protection and asylum is given by the Kenyan government and the Kenyan people. And what the government of Kenya has repeated on a number of occasions is that it would continue to abide by its international obligations as it had for 
the past 20, 25 years. You have to keep in mind that Kenya is the second country in Africa when it comes to the number of refugees being received, and Kenya has in the region played a very positive role in providing support and assistance to refugees. What exactly do these returnees need? There hasn't been a huge groundswell of appreciation from the international community uh, when they heard this news from the Kenyan government that they were going to close Dadaab. What do these returnees need? How might the international community get behind uh, them? Security is the number one issue because, as I mentioned to you, there are parts of the country that are safe, parts of the country that are not safe, but it's the most important thing is security. The second thing is some of the support that they get in Dadaab, which is education, which is health care, which is shelter. This is the kind of support that they require in their places of origin once they return. It's expensive. It requires massive support from the international community. But there are parts of Somalia which, where people can rebuild their lives if they are provided with this kind of support. So do you have a figure for the amount of money you need? We are right now working on on that, and we will be issuing an appeal shortly. But one thing that I can mention to you is that last year, in October, there was a ministerial pledging conference for the repatriation of Somali refugees in Brussels. And at that point, the amount of projects that were presented to the international community was about $500 million, and amount pledged, and the EU was one of the number one organizations to pledge, was about $105 million. And of that, we, we probably received so far four, five, or six million dollars. That was Rauf Mazu of the UN Refugee Agency speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. Former director of the Center for Human Rights and professor of human rights at the University of Pretoria in South Africa, Christopher Haynes, has been elected as a member of the United Nations Human Rights Committee. Haynes, who previously served as UN Special Rapporteur, was nominated by the South African government. Neo Makwiting has more. Haynes has commended government and the University of Pretoria's management for endorsing his candidature with the United Nations bodies. He says he appreciates and values the support that the university has given him while serving as the UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary and Arbitrary Executions over the past six years. Haynes also recognized the assistance he received from the Turkish Faculty of Law. In my case, the University of Pretoria has really given me complete uh, freedom to pursue this. Uh, I do think it's translated into quite a number of articles that I've been able to write and so forth, Uh, but they've been very generous uh, with allowing me to do so. And it's also, I think, uh, a good thing, I I would venture to say, from the university's perspective, that they get the practical uh, side to what they are doing. They increase that component of what they offer the students. Um, And, well, I must say, I think the university has really made it possible for me to do this. Haynes, who taught human rights law at various international universities, including Oxford and the University of Geneva in Switzerland, explains his new job and role at the United Nations Human Rights Committee. Uh, I've been the UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary or Arbitrary Executions for the last six years. That's running out in July now. And I'm also uh, chairing the Independent Investigation into Burundi. But both of those experiences with the UN really involves that you go to the ground and to the field and you uh, go to the problems, so to speak, uh, and you visit the police stations and you visit people in detention and all those sort of things. 
and then you write a report and that report you present to Geneva. The Human Rights Committee consists of 18 people and it's a bit like a, a court. So they get the problems well documented and stapled, brought to them in Geneva, and then they look at it and say what are the applicable legal principles in those cases. So it's, it's not so much a fact-finding, on-the-ground kind of uh, enterprise. It is much more uh, similar to what a court will do uh, and so they apply the covenant on civil and political rights and then they look at a state's record or if somebody has gone to the highest court in their country and they still feel unhappy, they can approach this uh, committee. Haynes has asked government not to withdraw its membership from the International Criminal Court. Haynes says South Africa as one of the 30 states on the continent to endorse and sign the statute that formally established the court should work towards improving the administration and functionality of the court. It seems to me that some of the steps that we're taking in setting up the ICC have caused understandable resistance. Uh, I do think in the long run, however, that this court is an important court and even if South Africa or other African countries now decide to leave, there will have to be a credible, there will have to be a functional uh, substitute for that. From my perspective, um, we should stay in the system, we should make the system work for us. Uh, We were instrumental as Africans, Uh, more than 30 of our states uh, have uh, uh, signed up to the and and ratified the Rome Statute. The suggestion to leave the court gained momentum last year after the South African government's refusal to enforce the ICC warrant of arrest for Sudanese President Omar al-Basir. I'm Nama Kwiting in Pretoria. A Zimbabwean government has offered its civil servants a token payment to avert a strike by the country's teachers and health workers over late salaries. But civil servants' representatives describe the offer as an insult. They insist June salaries be paid by the end of the month. Zimbabwe is in the middle of an economic crisis which has seen government move June salaries' pay dates into July. Shinganyoka reports from Harare. The second round of discussions saw Zimbabwe's government offer its workers a token payment while it mobilizes money to pay full salaries. The military have already been paid, while police and prison officials will receive their wages by the end of the month. But the country's educators, health workers, pensioners and the rest of the civil service will be paid between July 7th and 19th. Labor Minister Priska Mfumira. Government offered to pay $100 is an advance payment by Friday this week to alleviate the challenges or the problems so that the civil servants are able to go to work. The Apex Council, representing all civil servants, say the offer is an insult. The council's president, Cecilia Alexander. We are disturbed that the unilateralism on the part of government <clears throat> further confirms our earlier assertion. That government is negotiating in bad faith, requesting that our pensioners and health personnel are essential and vulnerable, respectively, and thus their payments be brought forward. With too many imports and too little exports, government says money is leaving faster than it's coming in, leading to a cash shortage. But civil servants believe the problem is bigger. College Lecturers Association President David Zatsunga. Zimbabweans at large have a very dim uh, view of government's protestations that it is failing to raise money to, 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 to meet its obligations. 
because of the massive uh, corruption. Civil servants earn an average 400 US dollars a month. As the government battles to pay its workers, a group of Zimbabweans is upset over what they see as wasteful expenditure by the country's political elite. They want Vice President Peleke Zelampoko to move out of a top hotel they say he has lived in for 18 months. His million-dollar state mansion is still being renovated. Meanwhile, hundreds of civil servants will meet on the weekend to decide whether to accept the 100 US dollar salary advance. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Now, the engineering unit of South Africa's state-owned Transnet has handed over the last batch of new and state-of-the-art passenger coaches to Botswana Railways yesterday. These coaches were designed, manufactured, tested and commissioned in South Africa by Transnet Engineering. The modern coaches boast innovations such as the luxury executive sleeper compartments and a boardroom in the buffet car, among others. To discuss this further, we are now joined on the line by Transnet Engineering Chief Executive Tamsang Achiyani. Good morning, Tamsang, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Tamsang, how did the decision to manufacture the coaches come about? Well, uh, we we were lucky. We got, we were requested to tender uh, uh, by uh, Botswana Railways somewhere last year, and uh, competed with some other OEMs for passenger coaches, and got lucky. We were, we got the deal. Now, this is definitely a great achievement for Transnet. How long did it take to complete the coaches and how many were manufactured? We manufactured all 37 of them. Um, uh, it takes about uh, 18 months in total to uh, go through a process of designing and then signing off the designs with the customer and then doing a prototype after the prototype. Uh, then we, we, we go into mass production. So, but we had to, the, the, the Botswana people had made a, a request that, uh, uh, they had had, they had uh, stopped their service around 2009 and they requested us to assist them to get the service operational before March, the end of March this year. Uh, uh so the, the, the process that I spoke about, I spoke about designing, was only finalized uh, at the, uh, somewhere in October last year, which meant that we just had under six months to at least complete the first two train sets. Uh, we, 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 we've got six uh, facilities in, 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 in Transnet Engineering uh, where, we, where we manufacture locomotives, uh, uh, various types of wagons and passenger coaches. So what we then decided to do is to use all our facilities to manufacture various components and then do the assembly in Good Sport and Salt River uh, so that you could be able to assist the customer and the Botswana people in ensuring that they have a service by uh, March. And uh, yes, we, we, we rose to the occasion. 22 coaches 
coaches, which is two uh, train sets, were delivered in, in, in on the 22nd of March this year. But uh, we had not, uh, there were some 15 coaches left. <clears throat> and five of the 15 is the state-of-the-art uh, 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 executive uh, sleeper co- uh, uh, coach that we were uh, uh, rolling out of our production line yesterday. Now, just speaking of those coaches, can you just give us a sort of a snippet of what the coaches look like inside? We know that uh, um, they're luxury executive sleeper compartments um, and a boardroom. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yes, uh, the, 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 the sleeper coach that we, we've designed and, uh, uh, and manufactured for, for, for Zona Railways is, is a state of the art. It comes with uh, air conditioning. Wi-Fi uh, uh, and the operation facilities we have on on those uh, are exactly similar to what you see on an aircraft, uh, and uh, it's everything is electronic is, elect- is uh, electronically controlled. They come with the uh, uh, entertainment system uh, where you can watch movies, play music, and also a public announcement system. And uh, we've got also a water purification system in the train where passengers get uh, fresh water all the time. Uh, and and, and yes, yeah, uh, we also, in the other coaches that we delivered, we've got what we call a power car, uh, which uh, makes the train self-sufficient in that it powers itself. Uh, uh, as you can hear, we, without power on the train, nothing works. Uh, and that's, uh, that was at the heart of the challenge that the, the, the Botswana people had immediately after delivery, when they had the initial water contamination issue on the diesel tanks. Because when the power car is down, you can't operate the train. There's no airflow, air circulation. There's no air conditioning. There are no lights. You can't get power in the train. Now, you mentioned the fact that there was some uh, the water contamination of the power diesel um, um, trains. What exactly happened there? I think I saw a clip on, on our, one of our channels, uh, news channels, that uh, you spoke of somebody having put in water in, in a diesel uh, a, a train, which uh, then stopped working. Can you just go into that a little? It's like, it's a simple thing. It's like a... Uh, a, 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 a car that has a diesel motor. Uh, if it happens that uh, you get contamination of water in the diesel tank, it, it damages the engine. So what had happened is that car, as I said, it's got a water purification system. We've got lots of tanks uh, on the on the coaches, uh, and the only coach that has a, a, a fuel tank is the power car, which is uh, has got two huge gen- generator sets. That power train. Uh, so I think it, 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 it was an error that somebody was refueling the, the water tanks at night, and uh, maybe they didn't see uh, the markings and the writings on the on the fuel tanks, and they mistakenly added water on the fuel tanks, which then led to contamination. And as a result of that, the chainsets in the power car failed. Well, but we were, we were there within within four hours, and in a space of about ten hours, the problem was resolved, and and the train continued to operate. 
Now, let's speak about other countries on uh, the African continent that you have been working with with regards to supplying them with uh, coaches. What other countries can you mention to us? Look, uh, uh, we've been mainly looking at uh, South Africa. We have uh, uh, done some coaches uh, for Zambia uh, and and, uh, a few other countries, but those were... uh, mainly refurbishment. So they would bring a coach that we remanufacture and then and, and do as new. Uh, but in the meantime, in the last three years, we started to uh, go into research and development to develop a product that is truly our own. And uh, we finalized uh, the process at the beginning of last year. <clears throat> we then were, were going to make one train set which was going to be used for promotional promotional purposes within Transnet that we can bring in our customers to showcase some of the things we do. So while we're in the process of that, then we got this order. Uh, as a result, uh, we then decided to say, let's rather use the material and the work that we did uh, on our own chain to rather deliver for the customer, and then we'll do ours. So it, it's, we are on our chain as a transit engineering which is a, a business within a, a, a division in Transnet called Advanced Manufacturing. As you may have seen in the in the, few, in the last few weeks, when the new uh, group leadership team was announced in Transnet, my title changed. I'm no longer the chief executive of uh, Transnet Engineering. It's a advanced. It's a chief officer, Advanced Manufacturing. We are calling it Advanced Manufacturing because. Uh, our, We are not only going to be doing uh, engineering on rolling stock, we are going to be looking at industrial equipment uh, and a whole lot of other uh, 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 items like um, the the, uh, equipment that is used to handle cargo in the ports and some of the most uh, critical equipment that we need in the country in terms of industrial equipment. Uh, So so, so trans engineering is, is one of the uh, divisions that have that uh, that. So we should definitely look forward to um, new systems and Wi-Fi on the trains, on the coaches, and you know, uh, luxury executive sleeper compartments um, in our train on our trains in South Africa soon. Unfortunately, uh, in South Africa, the, the, the passenger service is managed by Prasa. Obviously, they run their own processes, uh, internal tender processes to determine who they obviously award to. Uh, I know that uh, they, they, they are doing something with Kibela. Uh, but uh, for us, uh, we, we are currently negotiating three more contracts for for supply of uh, 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 various passenger coaches uh, in, the, in, in the continent. And uh, yeah, we should we would be making announcements uh, in the next uh, two or three months. And at the same time, uh, within the next uh, three months, two months, we will be launching our first uh, own, uh, our first uh, IP, our first own uh, uh, designed, uh, engineered, and manufactured locomotive in this country that we've done in transit engineering. We are actually going to be doing a soft uh, 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 unveiling uh, tomorrow. We're not unveiling the actual train, but I mean the, the actual locomotive. We are going to be at Africa Rail uh, showing off uh, exactly how it looks like. But uh, in the next two months, we are going to be uh, doing a, a launch because 
We have not manufactured the locomotives in this country, our own locomotive, in many, many years. Uh, and uh, again, as I say, uh, as we uh, propel uh, uh, transit engineering within advanced manufacturing to be a, 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 a preferred OEM uh, for, for various items in Africa, we thought it wise that we should also invest in research and development in developing our own IP so that we can make our own locomotive. And, and that's been successful. Uh, it's finished uh, all the stated tests. We are towards the end of the various dynamic tests. And, uh, yeah, it looks very good. And uh, we're looking forward to having that locomotive operating in this continent because it's been designed for the African conditions. Samsung, uh, we look forward to the day where we have our proudly South African product used and our proudly South African trains. So Prasa must come on board and, and, and support Transnet Engineering with uh, the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much for joining and us. Before you go, yes. thank you. And, and uh, Prasa is one of our, our big customers in South Africa because the current uh, coaches they run, we assist them in terms of various uh, general overhauls, uh, uh, various uh, uh, repairs and maintenance. Uh, so, so that fleet is, is going. There's a huge contribution that we, we continue to make. So, uh, yes, but uh, as I say, uh, unfortunately, when we run, when they run tender processes, uh, always we, the somebody who's going to be a winner. It may not necessarily be trans engineering; it could be somebody else. So, I mean, we continue as. Uh, these things come out, we'll participate, and uh, on the ones we win, we'll continue to do the work, and when others win, we then wish them good luck. Tom Sangma, thank you so much for joining us, and all the best in your work. Okay, thank you very much. That was Transnet Chief Officer Advanced Engineering, um, Tamsanga Gianni, joining us on the line from Cape Town. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, Human Rights Watch have documented the killings of at least 18 people by a police unit in the Central African Republic. An influential grouping of Catholic bishops in the DRC have called for elections to be held and scheduled this year. They also called for calling for President Joseph Kabila to step down when his second term ends. And U.S. First Lady Michelle Obama's urged girls in Liberia to fight to stay in school on a visit to the West African country. Those are the stories making headlines. remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. 
It's 8.35 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The leaders of all 28 European Union countries are meeting in Brussels for the first time after the UK voted to leave the bloc. A referendum last week saw 52% of Britons choose to exit the EU. It's being called the Brexit. Jack Parrock reports. EU leaders are descending on Brussels for the first time since the historic decision by the UK to leave the Union. It comes off the back of a visit here by US Secretary of State John Kerry, who urged European politicians for calm. I think it is absolutely essential that we stay focused on how, in this transitional period, nobody loses their head, nobody goes off half-cocked, people don't start ginning up, uh, you know, scatterbrained or revengeful premises, but we look for ways to maintain the strength that will serve the interests and the values that brought us together in the first place. The European Council insists that other issues like migration and jobs and growth will be first to be discussed at the EU summit before Brexit talks begin. Brussels is closing its ranks and voices here are calling for the UK to start the process of removing itself as soon as possible. Carsten Nickel is from Teneo Intelligence. Here in Europe you have a couple of governments, especially in France probably, who have an interest in moving ahead quickly because you want to get this situation over and done with and you want to send a clear message to your own Eurosceptic electorates at home that once you decide to leave, um, things are going to be tough. So you want to make sure that your own voters at home get the message that flirting with um, you know, Eurosceptic uh, politicians is a really bad idea. All 28 EU leaders will start at the summit here in Brussels, but by the time they resume their talks on Wednesday, UK Prime Minister David Cameron will not be present. The European Union is moving into a time when 27 countries will be the new normal. Jack Parrick, Brussels. Europe needs to build on existing systems to fight Zika and prevent any possible outbreak. This was the conclusion reached on Friday by disease surveillance and control experts who were attending a three-day meeting in Lisbon, Portugal. Health experts from the Americas were among those sharing their experience in handling the Zika virus outbreak with their counterparts from Europe. So far, Zika outbreaks have been reported in 60 countries and territories, mostly in Central and South America. Dr. Huawo Perez is an alert and response operations specialist at World, at World Health Organization Europe. The idea of this meeting was to discuss and bring the experience from the Americas. We have colleagues from Brazil, colleagues from the WHO Regional Office for the Americas, PAHO, um, bringing the experience from Latin America. And also, we were able to get the experts from several countries in the European region who had experience in the past. So the main conclusion uh, reached at this meeting was that we need to build on existing systems for vector, vector control, disease surveillance, laboratory testing, and emergency risk communication in order to strengthen our preparedness and response to Zika virus and prevent or contain quickly any possible outbreak in Europe. The experts recommended that all these four pillars are integrated and that interventions should focus on four main issues. Select the most effective interventions in the different 
scenarios of Zika virus transmission and related complications. We have to address vector-borne disease as a whole. So don't look only at Zika, but looking at arboviruses as a whole. And then we have to coordinate centrally, but be able to act uh, at the municipality, at the local level. Countries also agree that WHO role um, in coordinating and in issuing normative guidance standards and templates is of extreme importance. And they also recommend that the WHO would facilitate in sharing of information, expertise, and best practices, and provide support in case of a Zika virus outbreak is to occur in our region. That was Dr. Xiao Perez, an alert and response operations specialist at World Health Organization in Europe. It's 8.40 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Female magistrates and lawyers have ended a series of activities to mark this year's International Widows Day in Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé. They educated Cameroonian widows on their rights at a time when harmful traditional practices like forcing widows to marry their late husband's brothers, seizing their property or being forced to drink water used in bathing their husband's corpses as proof they did not kill them are still rampant in some areas. Mugi Kinzega has more from Yaoundé. This music from Cameroon's Bikutsi singer Thanos Fue blasts from speakers at the Yaoundé Central Market to raise awareness on the plight of widows. Among the widows who have turned out to explain their ordeal is 36-year-old mother of four, Christabel Nzi, who says all of her property was seized by her husband's family. Je suis veuve depuis six ans. Mon mari était mort du suite d'un accident de circulation. She says she's been a widow for six years, following the death by car accidents of her husband, and since the husband died, she's been abandoned by the husband's family. But her children have to go to school, and she has to struggle with a little provision store, which is not even doing well at home. She says there are other widows who are very poor or have nothing, and if they stay idle, they may die. Christabel says she is still struggling to settle her husband's debt contracted to build the house from which she and her kids have been evicted, while hoping that one day the law courts will hand over the matter to them and the house issue would be resolved. To meet her family's needs, Christabel sends her nine-year-old daughter Alvin Ngubu to sell fruits on the roadside. Ngubu says she is there to sell and raise money for her mother to pay her debts and that she is also raising money to be able to buy her school needs. But that there, where she is selling, there are so many problems because people want to sell quickly and they are exposed to accidents. Cameroon has close to 300 ethnic groups, an abundance of customs and practices which are unfavorable or harsh to women. The worst, women say, is widowhood rights and difficulties to inherit their late husband's property. 
Lawyer Ndwangum, who defends women's rights, says they are educating them to understand their rights. These widows should know that they have their rights and the law protects them. The family of the husband has no right to come and send her out of the house because whatever the cause of the husband's death, most often the OSA is the woman that killed the husband. It is true that most of these rights are practiced by the women themselves. And what we always say is that they should realize that they are not supposed to go through all this pain and suffering from other women. The widows are forced to get married either to the brother or the uncle of the deceased. Sometimes they are confined in the house. They are not allowed to go out. Besides inheritance, women in Cameroon complain of harsh widowhood rights that at times forces them to drink water used in washing their husband's corpses as proof they did not kill them. Change David, notable of the Combs Chief's Palace in northwestern Cameroon, says the rationale for the traditions of widowhood rights is to purify the widows. He accuses women of now using the rights to settle personal scores. It's the way and the manner in which women carry out this exercise that becomes a problem. There are also other women that if they don't carry out the widowhood, they feel they're carrying a burden. Abuses are coming in. Some individuals use the widowhood right to settle scores. For example, a man can decide that at least I will build a house to my elder brother. The wife will say, no, let's use that money to do other things. But when, when a man dies now, those brothers, those aunties, those cousins, they say, since you were blocking our things, now you will not eat those things joyfully. Cameroon's Minister of Women's Empowerment and the Family, Professor Marie-Therese Abena-Ondua, says such traditions disrespect the woman and relegate them to secondary roles in the society. She says she is happy more and more women are now becoming conscious. She settled to implement or monitor these laws. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. Our economic update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. The Zimbabwe government has offered its civil servants a token payment to avert a strike about the country's teachers and health workers over late salaries. During a second round of negotiations, the government said that the payment would assist the civil servants to get work, while government tries to source full salaries. June salaries for most of the civil service will be paid in July, as Zimbabwe battles cash shortages as a result of low exports and high imports. Labor Minister Priska Mamfumira offered to pay $100 is an advance payment by Friday this week to alleviate the challenges or the problems so that the civil servants are able to go to work. 
South Africa could experience heavy spring and summer rains as the El Nino phenomenon changes into La Nina. The First National Bank head, Mark Stradham, says that there is a strong likelihood that spring rains will be above normal after the worst drought on record. Well, there are private groups of farmers in the, the um, flats, uh, the sugarcane guys around Mpangeni, where they normally flat or where they normally flood, um, but they've got their co-ops already um, budgeting for levy, um, heightening the levies, increasing the levies, that type of thing. A South African man who was among seven employees of an Australian mining company abducted in Nigeria is expected back in South Africa this morning. International Relations Department spokesperson Nelson Huerta says that the unnamed man left Nigeria last night. Huerta says he was not injured and he will be reunited with his family. The men were abducted in Calabar, Nigeria, last Wednesday. McMohan Holdings Limited, which employed the seven men, says two of them were seriously injured and are being treated. The men have asked not to be identified. South Africa's demand for energy has increased over the years, and this has resulted in the power utility Eskom's capacity to provide energy being compromised. As the country aims to build a green economy, it has partnered with the United States in a number of renewable energy projects. Vice President of the Solar Reserve Utility Project, Terence Governor. The Solar Reserve is a U.S. developer of power projects, and we entered the South African market uh, back in 2010. And we were happy to be a part of uh, the Department of Energy's Renewable Energy Independent Power Producer Procurement Program. Egypt's central bank says it will secure some 10 billion US dollars from the International Monetary Fund by agreeing a structural reform program, but has yet to make any formal requests to do so. Talks over a possible loan half that size have faltered in the past and Analysts say an IMF deal might require reforms that the government could find politically difficult to implement in a country where tens of millions live hand-to-mouth. The central bank statement came in response to comments by a cabinet minister who said that Egypt had started negotiations with the IMF last week for a $5 billion U.S. dollar loan. The U.S. dollar trades at 1527 to the South African rand. 1093 with John Apuda, 1084 in Zambia, 075 British pound, 090 euro. Gold is trading at $1,317, platinum $975 per ounce, brand crude $47.73 a barrel. We are Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. Roy Hodgson's has resigned as England manager following his side's humiliating 2-1 defeat by Tiny Iceland in the Euro 2016, last round of 16 on Monday. Hodgson's contract was due to expire after the tournament and following the match in Nice, he read a pre-prepared statement at his post-game 
um, post-game press conference in which he said he would not be seeking to continue as head coach. Monday's result at the Stadia Denise against a team from a country with a population of just 330,000 and with no previous tournament experience brought a miserable end to Hodgson's four-year reign, appointed manager after um, Fabio Capello's abrupt resignation back in May 2012. He led England to a credible quarter-final finish at Euro 2012, where they lost on penalties to eventual finalists Italy. But the 2014 World Cup in Brazil was a disaster as England crashed out just after two matches in their worst tournament performance since the 1958 World Cup. He was allowed to remain in his role, but despite a youthful England team qualifying for Euro 2016 with a perfect record of 10 wins, they once again fell apart at a major tournament. Meanwhile, Spain playmaker Andres Iniesta admitted the reigning champions paid the price for a sloppy first half as they crashed out of Euro 2016 to Italy on Monday and said the defeat was a hard one to take. Italy ran out 2-0 winners at the Stadia de France with Giorgio Cellini opening the scoring in the first half and Grazino Pelé securing the victory right at the death. Spain had start the, um, started the tournament in promising fashion with wins against the Czech Republic and Turkey, but a 2-1 defeat to Croatia condemned them to second place in Group D and a clash with the Italians, um, the, um, with the Italians who will now play Germany in one of the quarterfinal matches. Portugal will go up against um, Poland, while Wales will face off with Belgium, and the hosts France will take on Iceland in the round of eight. Still on football news, Argentina football legend Diego Maradona on Monday urged Lionel Messi not to follow through on his vow to quit the national team after its defeat in the Copa America. 29-year-old Messi told reporters in the United States he had decided to quit after Argentina's defeat on penalties to Chile on Sunday. Messi is widely rated as the best player in the world, but was um, but that was his fourth defeat in an international final for Argentina. The 1986 World Cup winner Maradona blamed Argentina's recent bike of trophies on the country's football association. He accused it of not supporting Messi and letting him take the blame for Sunday's defeat to cover up its shortcomings in managing the sport. Back home, South African Premiership side Kaiser Chiefs have officially announced John Pencil as Steve Gombella's assistant for the upcoming season. The former Ghana international reunites with Gombella, having worked with him at Maritzburg United two seasons ago. Pencil brings a lot of experience as a former footballer, having played for Ghana's national team for many years. He says he's honoured to join the team. It's been an amazing and great opportunity to be part of uh, Kaiser Chiefs family. Um, since I joined uh, the team a uh, few days, um, I think I have a good feeling that uh, I'm not here alone. I'm not going to be here alone. It's a family and it's, uh, great people around. I've met the chairman himself. I've met Bobby and also um, the man himself, uh, Coach Steve Compella. They've made the place very, very uh, good, um, welcome, and I feel at home. And we are praying to God that what brought John Pinto here uh, would be amended uh, very soon. And thank you all for having me here, and may God bless all of us. At the same time, Kaiser Chiefs head coach Steve Gombella believes John Pencil is the best option of the coaches available for the assistant coaching job at the team following his surprise selection as his second in command. I've worked with John Pencil, and at Chiefs, we all know. 
pressure is immense and you got to be addicted to pressure working at Chiefs. And there's nothing that is perfect than winning trophies. And this guy has a pedigree. He's been to two World Cups, 2006, 2010. He's played in England for several teams. I've worked with him at, Man- at Marisburg United. I know the personality, the character, the qualities, both technical and humanistic. And at the back of having gone through a lot of searching and identifying, he came up the candidate who topped the list. As I sports news at the SARS, stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, Rise and Shine at the Sawa. SADC Double Troika Summit gets underway in Khabarone today and the UN agency encourages Somali nationals to leave the Dadaab camp in Kenya. That wraps up Africa, Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutu Ramagadza and Jane Rabotata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of our folding news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Debanch with a song title, Fall in Love. Fall in love